Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and by Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. Not for the first time, Jurgen Klopp captured the mood of the times. Football, he said, always seems the most important of the least important things. It's intensely tribal, relatively trivial, but a wonderful distraction. Perhaps we'll see it in a different light during the shutdown. This week, more than ever, it needs far-sighted leadership. Not the usual mixture, self-interest, ignorance and arrogance. Will it get it, John? The, the only problem I think about this week is that we live in such uncertain times with the coronavirus that I just think that they could set out different plans, different proposals, contingency plans really and put them as a date and time and still not get anywhere near where we want to be. I think you're right. I think in those times we really need people to kind of stand up and and be heard. And, and I do worry. I mean, it's a huge test, I think. I mean, I think the first point in time is this UEFA meeting on Tuesday. I think without that, nothing else is possible, basically. And I think UEFA have a very, very strong and, and outspoken leader as under Seferin. And, and I think that other leagues will have to take their lead from there. I think all the national associations, all the leagues are dialing into that. And I just think what has to be done as a start point is UEFA saying, forget self-interest, forget the kind of commercial value. We have to make sure that football is safe. Football, I think, has a wonderful ability to bring bring a new hope and to, to kind of take and be, be a distraction, frankly, bring joy back to the people. I would hate to see massive amounts of games played behind closed doors because supporters are the lifeblood of the game. I don't think we should go down that road. But I do think we, we need really strong leadership from the start off from UEFA. And I think everything else follows from there. But there's so much uncertainty that I think we might end the end of this week, have various proposals but be completely unsure about which worth being implemented, basically. Yeah. Now, this issue, Tony, is, is almost like double-edged. There's a philosophical element to it, which we'll probably get into later. But in practical terms, 
what needs to be done, you know, accepting what John said about the uncertainties, you know, we're talking about postponing the Euros, applying the principle that the season finishes? I think so. I think so. I think what's interesting about what John said is talking about the idea of playing matches behind closed doors just to accelerate stuff. Absolutely not. I mean, I remember, remember England, England going to Croatia in the Nations League and that was a really eerie experience. The whole thing felt very odd, even as a spectator on TV. I think we saw, obviously, my attentions were on the, the Liverpool game against Atletico last week, but the other game that was on that night also played behind closed doors, similarly dead. Mm. Football, as John said, brings so much passion, joy, despair, all of those extremities of feelings that is part of the game and part of what people love about it. Taking those away means you don't really have the same sport. I think in terms of the plans, what can they do? I, you know, I, I think I'm quite happy to hammer administration and, and governing bodies as much as anyone, but I think they're not experts. They have to take the lead from the scientists. So I think we've all, we all agree on that, which means that you need leadership that is strong enough to be able to say, for the moment, nothing. There's no point in putting out a million different, in my view, there's no point in putting out a million different proposals if you simply can't commit to any of them. What you end up then is a huge argument between, again, it, it, that for me encourages self-interest, the kind of stuff that we saw from, from Karen Brady last week. We just have to wait and be patient, which is not what football fans traditionally are good at, mm. but I think it has to be the only way forward for now. Because mm. the thing that, that strikes me at the moment is that, that those in charge haven't covered themselves in glory. You know, let's be honest about it. The, the Karen Brady column was just lamentable. Not that surprising, but lamentable. You've got Greg Clark, the FA chairman, you know, sowing unnecessary doubt by wondering whether this season will be completed. Is the essence now, are we looking for that guidance and that leadership? And are we looking at something that might not even be there? Yeah, I do, I do think that's the worry. I mean... <laughs> I feel for the FA in many ways because last week was was ridiculous to a point because basically they're only following government advice, aren't they? They're a national association, so I think it's it's rather, you know, unthinkable for them to kind of veer away from government advice. Everyone could see that at the start of the week that the Italy-Denmark games, just a small, you know, consideration really in the grand scheme of things, were going to be postponed. But the FA couldn't postpone them because they were following government advice. I thought it was slightly different from the Premier League, for example. I felt it was quickly becoming evident that basically they were looking for greater leadership, the clubs, and I don't think they got that. I thought that <laughs> in times past, I think that, you know, like him or loathe him, Scudamore would have put his head above the parapet, said something and shown a bit more leadership. I mean, blimey. I have some sympathy with Richard Masters because, I mean, this is a new chief exec who's come in very recently into something that's never happened before. And so you kind of have to have some sort of sympathy with him. But I just think I didn't understand why the games weren't cancelled beforehand. Because look at Wolves' situation, by, by the way. That club was very, very clear. We don't want to go to Olympia because we don't want to go to Athens where the risk is real. We don't want to play behind closed doors because of our fans. They're very outspoken. And I think that they spoke for many clubs, not just playing Europa League fixtures, but also their views in the sort of the Premier League. And it took the Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta, to <laughs> test positive before we actually had any. How laughable is that? I mean, really, it's embarrassing, you know. And therefore, I thought that that showed 
a lack of leadership. These are testing times for, for the EFL as well. Mm. And I, I did actually feel that the EFL, you know, they don't have so much of a high profile perhaps as, as the Premier League. <coughs> But I, I, I thought they were a little bit more proactive in their sort of planning. They've got their own crisis meeting on Wednesday and trying to sort of, you know, work out contingency plans to keep clubs alive. Because if we're there without it for, for months, clubs will go to the wall within weeks. Yeah, well, that's that's the point I wanted to get on to, Tony, that, you know, we are in a situation, well, do you expect clubs to go to the wall? And if so, what can the game do to prevent that? Are we looking at something, you know, some form of, you know, almost like a Marshall plan for <coughs> football where you've got, you know, the Premier League and the FA, you know, the one thing they have got is money. Equally, yeah. the PFA, their members are being affected. You know, Gordon Taylor perhaps could go and sell one of his Lowry's, couldn't he? <laughs> and, give it to, and give it to the troops. Are we looking for that type of concerted action financially to support the smaller clubs? It's really funny because I've sat on this sofa before. We've had the same chat about it when when Berry were, were going to the wall, when mm. Bolton were under threat, Oldham, of course, Macclesfield. They're even more now. And there was an element then of saying, well, the EFL had a responsibility first and foremost, but the clubs themselves have a responsibility to run themselves in a slightly more sensible manner. But that was in normal times, and now we're not in normal times. And I think you're right. I think the, the dial has shifted to the point that you have to. We have to be thinking about. How can these clubs be protected? Because they're losing revenue and income streams that they rely on, that they would rely on. That in normal times, and we're in very abnormal times, they would be getting weekly, monthly, per season. You're right. The governing bodies have the money. They need to find a way of spending it in a responsible manner that, that means that these clubs still exist when football resumes. The only thing I thought, it was really interesting, I heard Mark Palios, you know, who's obviously mm. now involved with, with the club. He used to be at the FA, so he's got kind of all sides. Mm. Heard him, the interesting interview with him on the radio, sort of saying like, the, you know, I get the kind of, you know, the Football League clubs should be self-sufficient in a way. They shouldn't be reliant on the handouts. But he was making the point, they help make up the competition. Mm. And without competition, you don't have sport. <clears throat> and I just, I do, do sympathise with, with that. We, we shouldn't forget that while... Airlines, understandably, are calling for government help in the billions mm. because they're a huge industry and, and they're an employer. Football clubs, we, we seem to disregard the fact that within certain towns and, you know, within certain societies, communities rather, uh, that, that they employ so many people away mm. from the football side. Yeah. I mean, you know, what about the people on zero-hour contracts? who are sort of, you know, routinely employed in sort of the catering side, the entertainment side. And it's a very, very big consideration. Surely at some point, football has to come together. There's so much consideration about sort of the players, perhaps outside of the top two, who really are facing devastating Well, they've time. got mortgages to pay. Absolutely, of course the they one, have. The one problem that football has is this, is this ongoing PR of the fact that there is such a huge disparity in wealth between the haves and the have-nots. So if you think about footballers contributing to the community or contributing to the culture or the kind of mental welfare, well-being of a nation, you can put it on a parity with the arts, for example, mm. which and the arts are subject to a huge amount of, not handouts is a bad term, but of mm. support, mm. of financial support. The only issue there is that in the arts, if you look at people performing on stage in, in London, they're not earning, you know, 20, 30 million quid a year for doing it. The problem in football is that people at the top end, people say, well, salaries are so big. Oh, my God, you know, why should we be supporting them without necessarily thinking that further down the food chain? Well, actually, try telling that to someone in League Two who's earning 600 quid a week. Exactly. 
Exactly. But the problem is that in the world, football is just seen as this is the Premier League, this is what the top earns, this is what Mo Salah earns, this is what, you know, what Paul Pogba earns. And for right or for wrong, that's the way people just look at it. Mm. Um, we said there's a, there is a, a, a philosophical and practical element to this. I found it really interesting that the best example that I've seen of I don't know, community spirit is actually from the club 92nd in the pyramid, Stevenage. Their staff, their players, their facilities are all going to be used for basically, they're going to open, them, open up the facilities and have the players and staff support the over 70s in the community, you know, delivering food, doing their shopping, that type of stuff. That's a real practical example mm. of how a football club can respond to the needs of its community and its supporters. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I do applaud. I think, you know, Aston Villa did something, didn't they, with, mm. with leftover meals? I think Brighton also Brighton as did, well. Yeah. Brighton, incredibly, I think, a really good... You know, Paul Barber community. actually has come out of this, the chief exec, really well. He has, yeah. He did a really good interview, didn't he, the other day, which mm. I saw, and then basically... You understand then that people with even within the Premier League clubs have a compassion yeah. and a heart for, for the community, which goes beyond. And I just think with I go back to that point that we, we overlook the fact that for a lot of clubs, for a lot of, you know, in towns, that basically it's the focal point of the whole community. Mm. And that's why I think it goes beyond the kind of the sporting element. You know, I, I, I mean, I go back to the fact that basically why I think behind closed doors is not an option. It's not football anymore. It's not sport as we know it, simply because, like, no one wants to play in that atmosphere. And by the way, if a club then, you know, gets the virus, then they're subject to 14 days, you know, quarantine anyway. So, so it's all off, all bets are off. But it, it's, it's forgetting the fact that how important, you know, the football is to the fans. And once you take out the fans, I just think it's it's nothing. Equally, I just think football within the community is the same. And I just felt that hearing Paul Barber speak, it was someone that really gets that. And I thought that was really refreshing to hear. I'm not saying that others don't, mm. but then you hear, you hear well, nice the contrast. Though, Absolutely. <laughs> but you hear the contrast of others and you yeah. think, yeah. do you understand that actually football is not just a business, it's yeah. actually for the fans too. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's put too fine a point on it, Tony. You're a Liverpool fan. Yeah. yeah. No crime. <laughs> um, when we do get this season underway again, and I'm, I think it will be a when rather than an if, yeah. how would you feel as a fan rather than a professional observer if your team won their first title for 30 years and no one was there to see it in person? Exactly. It just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Absolutely none. John's right, it's about the fans. You can't imagine Jordan Henderson lifting a trophy in an empty stadium with a few few casual observers. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think this is why we have to look at this postponement until April the 3rd, 4th, and just see that as a complete phony war. Like We all know football's not going to resume at the start of April. We're in this strange situation where we're watching the mainland Europe, particularly Italy, Spain to a point as well. And we're a couple of weeks behind them. We see where the graphs are going in there, the number of cases, the number of deaths. There's absolutely no chance in a million years that football is going to resume here in, at the start of April. We're looking at months. So I think the sooner they just get rid of that date, the better, and just say, well, you know, we'll come back to you when we know more. Mm. Um, we all understand we're in uncharted territory here. 
I think the idea that the self-interest is going to play a part, I think the reaction to the Karen Brady column last week shows that despite the tribalism of football, common sense is taking over, fair play is taking over, and, and a sense of just perspective that you alluded to at the start with, with what Jurgen Klopp said last week is taking over. Football's just going to have to wait for a bit. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that she even felt the need on social media yesterday to offer some clarity to the When comments. in holes, stop digging. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just felt, though, that... Actually, if there's one thing that to come out of this shows that and basically football needs to wake up and listen to this, right? That nulling and voiding it, as she suggested, is totally off the agenda. Even that if that means then you have to play to a point and then find a formula. I mean, Duckworth Lewis, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's just <laughs> like, I, I personally also really took offence to a few kind of... You know, it's, it's definitely been discussed. I'm not de deriding that. But the basically how, you know, Leeds and, and West Brom would be promoted and you'd right. have a 22-team league. That's a nonsense. That's a confection. That's I a mean, nonsense. it's ridiculous. But <laughs> hang, hang on. How disrespectful is that to the EFL and to the Championship? They're massive yeah. clubs. And it's like, oh, OK, we'll just take your best teams, shall we? We'll take the best two teams at the moment and we'll just play on. Thanks very much. What about you? Yeah. Would, they be, mean, would they be saying laugh. that Barnsley and Hull were first and second? Yeah, in the exactly. I and mean, yeah. what a joke. You know, I do think we have to think about it logically. The amount of self-interest and the amount of self-indulgence is, is scary at the moment. Mm. You've actually seen the other side of it, if you like. You know, a very good piece, if I may say so, in the Thank mirror. You. Um, <laughs> Makes a change. <laughs> <laughs> with Asmir Begovic, you know, obviously playing with AC Milan in Italy. I thought there was some great insight there. Can you want to share that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I spoke to him on, on Saturday morning, actually. I like Asmir and we sort of kind of go back quite a long way. And he, I've always found him incredibly eloquent, paints pictures and, and sort of shares anecdotes. And, you know, he's someone that really cares beyond the kind of the, the football scheme of things, if you like. And he painted a picture of just how it developed so quickly in Italy. So it went from, we're going to play on the next day behind closed doors, the next day we're going to have to postpone into a complete lockdown throughout the country. I mean, Milan, Rome uh, have been particularly hard hit. <coughs> Here is a player... He's at Bournemouth, he's on loan to AC Milan, he's reviving his career there, he's, you know, he's really happy there and he's getting his career back on track. But all of a sudden, the crisis hits and he painted this picture of, he lives in the city, he basically, like others, they're just completely under lockdown, they're told not to go out at all, not to leave, leave the house where possible. He said all the streets are completely deserted, no one knows quite what's, what's going on. The odd supermarket is open, but restaurants are all completely shut down. The, the, the streets are under lockdown. These are terrifying times where even hospitals don't have enough beds to go around. They have to make life and death decisions over who gets the breathing equipment and who, could be, who can be treated, who has the best chance for survival. It is that brutal. And what has frustrated me, you know, is that I spoke to someone else in Italy a couple of weeks ago and said, England and the Premier League just don't know what's coming but it's coming and the lack of foresight and the lack of kind of preparation is incredibly worrying. I mean, just going back to, to Asmir on that, he was talking about also how in the longer term, how football can offer a hope and basically is the game of the people. And the one positive to come out of it is that he was saying it absolutely should be decided on the pitch and we should play games you know, un until the season is, is concluded, whenever that might be. 
because it can it can offer sort of a joy to the people basically it is it is still a sport and in desperate times it's it's one of the things that sort of kind of comes out but i can't stress enough the sheer anxiety and the worry footballers not being able to play football is a bizarre experience but he has a social conscience that that makes him know that the, the you know the devastation is far beyond that mm. you know footballers my acquaintance you know they're going to go probably probably back to training tomorrow maybe wednesday and their heart's not really going to be in it is it I think we all feel the same way. Anyone, anyone doing a job, footballers are at the end of the day just footballers, just guys doing a job. You know, we've, we talked today about coming in, coming into the centre of London, and it just feeling mm. a bit deader than it usually. Well, actually, a lot deader than it usually is. Of course, you feel that more in the centre of London because it's usually teeming with people. But there is just a, a general sense of, despite toilet roll gate, there isn't a sense <laughs> of panic. There's just, a, there's just a sense of, it's a sense of complete not knowing, of ignorance of the unknown. And you're right until. There's no, I, I feel you'd feel the same. There's no point in me going and doing a job if I, or starting to do some work if I don't know when that is going to come to fruition. For footballers going into train, they're finely honed athletes. They, they know when their next game... That, that they are, the whole point about football is that it is, to a point, all done with military precision. That's gone out of the window. Don't know when the next game is. So it's going to be really interesting. And psychologically, it's going to be a really interesting period for, for a lot of these guys because we all know... The elite sports people operate on a level that is slightly different to, to the rest of us. Take that away, take that competition away. I mean, they're almost in kind of semi-retirement for a, for a bit, mm. aren't they? Because that mental edge, isn't it, John? That probably that we never see, but that mental edge is going to be lost. Yeah, it really will. I think you also lose your, your, your match sharpness. You lose, you know, focus, don't you? I think we'll have a long time off, to be honest. And how... What is the point in training, basically? I think clubs will have this, you know, a very sort of kind of scattered approach to training because obviously some clubs are under quarantine. Arsenal can't come back until the end of the month because they're basically, <laughs> the, the manager's tested positive and they're being very, very sensible about it and cautious. You know, Chelsea have partially shut down their training ground. I mean, it, it's just everyone's going to have sort of variables. I mean, you know, the, the other thing that, as Mirbegovic was saying, was basically they've been sent away. They were always given a programme for the next three weeks. They've been sent away, you know, and, and told to stay at home, told to stay away and have no idea in, re in, in practical reality terms that basically when they might be told to come back and start training again. I mean, this is the issue, isn't it? That basically, you know, gyms are hotspots for the normal people. So therefore, training grounds are the hotspots. If you come back and train, like, as you normally would, the chances are that they're basically an infection that basically a player could easily get from doing normal things like going down the supermarket can be sort of brought back to, back to the training ground. And that's the practicalities of it. And I also think that's why we can't really look to playing behind closed doors as a long-term solution, because as soon as one test positive, it comes back. And... I just think it, it's incredibly difficult to, fo you know, to train, stay fit and be focused if you've got nothing to focus on. Mm. That's the reality. Because also what, what we tend to forget is that f footballers are freelancers. You know, as I am, you know, you know, certainly I, you know, a lot of people are. They have contracts which run up until the end of June. <laughs> so what happens when the season starts again or the, the resumption comes in July, do they still play for their clubs? Yeah. There's so many different elements to this. I mean, it's it's on that, I just think common sense has to has to play a part. You know, contracts have to be 
extended or in theory extended. The contract was to is to May or June 2020 because May or June 2020 represents the end of that season. Mm. So in effect, the date disappears and the end of that season takes its spot. That becomes slightly tricky when you're talking about potential transfers overseas because we're in a situation where we don't know when all seasons are going to finish. Yeah. I mean, you expect that the UEFA brains will try and get to a point where the majority of seasons, if they don't finish at the same time, at least the following ones start at the mm. same time. It just has to be... I also remember when I, was, when I was at school being blown away by the idea that kind of the head of maths sorted out everyone's timetable for the entire year. <laughs> but that's, that's where we are. We just have to, mm. you know, we have to get in all the information we can as and when we have it and then just let some people who are way cleverer than any of the three of us put their heads together and, and create a solution. It's like find a formula. Yeah. Do you think this will also... This is where we're getting into sort of the, the philosophical element of it, John, uh, that we'll get to the stage where... You know, the Super League agitators like mm. you know, Juventus president um, Agnelli will almost be seen as out of step with the times. Well, it's funny, actually. I do think that's a very valid point in that basically how on earth can you sell anything new, anything transformative when we are in these incredibly difficult times when you are basically how can you sell a new vision or a new idea? which, let's be honest, is, is always going to be tied or viewed with scepticism and greed. And I just don't think you can at the moment. Look, I, I personally think a Champions League reform is completely inevitable. And I think the, the aim was to bring it in by, or have a proposal by April. That, I think, even before this happened, has been put back to the end of the year. But I think the long, you know, sort of the long view now without a shadow of a doubt, is that basically it could affect, massively affect the impact or, or the vision or the proposals perhaps which that they were hoping to bring in for the next TV contract, which what starts in 2024, I think, you know, so it's, it's I think it could, I think it could have a knock on effect that that gets delayed and delayed. I think people just want their football back. And it might actually be a wake up call, as, as you allude to, that Nothing is more important than football. And basically, it, it could be a sort of kind of reminder that we just want football in its purest form. And do we want these breakaways? Not really. We just want football. Mm. I think that's totally right. Can you imagine the atmosphere the first game mm. back after what will be an extremely extended... I mean, it's, bad, it's good enough at the start of August when you come back for the start of mm. a normal season when the sun is shining and everyone just absolutely bang up for it. You know, I'm sure we all sit around in May or June thinking, God, thank God for that. And actually, by the time mm. August comes around, we're missing it so much. I mean, if we think that maybe we may not see football again until, say, August again, and we're currently in the middle of March, I mean, the atmosphere will be phenomenal. Mm. And I think there will be a, a slight reappraisal of where we are and saying, oh, my God, just, actually, we should actually be a lot more thankful for what we have and what, what it is rather than yeah, it's not worrying about what it is. This isn't a direct comparison. This is at the risk of actually almost overemphasising, but at the end of the Second World War, the crowds were enormous. Yeah. Now, OK, I'm not making a direct comparison, but yeah. that principle would apply, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It? Yeah. yeah. With the coach's voice, Tony, you concentrate on tactical, temperamental aspects of, of, of coaching. Because we're now living in different, difficult and different times, there has to be an element of sensitivity to management, I'm guessing. I thought Maurizio Pochettino nailed it when he said, nowadays, the more human leader is the one that is successful. 
the iron fist is a thing of the past. Do you agree with that? 100%, yeah. I think we've, already, we've seen it with the way that Pochettino developed his Spurs squad and the way that Klopp has managed Liverpool. Just, this is not to say these guys can't be decisive and can't be strong when they need to be. I think we've seen from both of them that that's exactly the case. But there is a humanity about the humanism about them, the way they treat their players, the way they treat the fans, the way they treat the media, mm. frankly, let, let's be honest, that just feels more progressive, feels more 21st century. And I think we've seen, certainly at the coach's voice, when we've spoken to managers who are maybe slightly older, who have been around for, for slightly longer, even talking to them, they are aware that maybe the game has changed significantly and that they need to move with the times or possibly face the fact that they're, they're defunct in the modern game. And I think this is a, you know, this again will be a very testing period. I think we've already, as again, you've alluded to, Klopp has already shown himself to be, you know, a genuine leader of, of people, possibly more so than some of those that we've seen in more important, <laughs> relevant positions in politics. But yeah, I totally agree with what Potter said. Yes. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. What I liked about his statement the other day was that the way he kicked it off was saying basically football managers shouldn't count and I don't know really why I'm saying this, which, you know, to be honest, shows <laughs> just how humble he is, really. And he has... Whether he likes it or not, you know, someone like that is, is a symbol for Liverpool, but also English football, and basically people will listen. Mm. And basically when he says something, he will probably have more of an impact on the kind of the you know the football world if you like the football community than anything that Boris Johnson could ever say and i just you know disregarding the the politics he's just you know as a football fan you will listen to he can make more of an impact and i love what he said about kind of putting the importance of liverpool's title and by the way i'm sure that they will will, will get it by some way <laughs> But I, he was dismissing that as, a, as an afterthought, and I loved that about it. I thought that was tremendous. That is the sort of kind of selfless attitude we need in times of crisis. And he, mm. know, he knows what he represents. Mm. He knows what being the manager of Liverpool and a, such a high-profile manager, such a, such a successful manager wherever he's been in, in the modern world, he knows what it represents. He plays it down rightly because he is only a football manager. You know, he can't save lives. But what he can do is set a tone, set a way of behaving that people who follow him will, will, will look to emulate. Yeah, well, it, it, I thought it was really significant, even when he first joined Liverpool, that one of his first things, and he did the same thing, funnily enough, when he went into Dortmund, where his first act there was going to go see the ultras, and I think he was playing dice with them and that type of thing. Yeah. His first thing that he did when he got to Liverpool was go into the supporters' pub and get a feel for his workplace, if you like. Mm. That is true empathetic management, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And again, you kind of, you want to see that leadership across the board in all, in all realms of society, particularly the ones that matter. I think it's just, it's just and, and there are a few of them just, you know, and even in, in his short time at Arsenal, the coronavirus positive Mikel Arteta <laughs> has, has shown himself to be of similar, similar stock, you know. You just want, people just want to look at people in positions of responsibility, of high profile, mm. and believe that they're behaving in the right way. There are too many areas in society at the moment, in the UK, that I think people look at and they don't see that. Mm. So to see someone like Klopp setting that kind of example, Poch as well, you say, just mm. gives, just en encourages me for one. Yeah, it's a connection, isn't it? Yeah. I just think, yeah, I think is, yeah. Pochettino yeah. had that wonderful thing with, yeah. with Spurs yeah. fans. In, which which actually, to be fair, 
Mourinho doesn't. No, he doesn't. And, he, you know, he's a different sort of manager. And I'm not sort of dismissing him from that. But that's, that, that's, that's one thing. And, you know, Pochettino is the other. I think the other one is Frank Lampard, who strikes me as kind of, you know, he sort of has that connection with, with Chelsea fans. And that's why I think Chelsea fans are desperate for it to work out for him. But I think it's so important, you know, that basically in, in, in football now, that those sort of voices and that connection. Because if you don't have a connection, you just can't, have any kind of empathy with it. And I think it completely changes the way you view your team and the way that you support your team. You're a lifelong fan. Of course you're going to support them. I'm not suggesting that. But it's like, it's a total different view of your team because you're thinking, Jurgen Klopp goes onto the pitch after games. He salutes the cop. He did it after that bizarre West Brom game. It was all that time yeah. ago. Oh, so it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not, but it's not. Yeah. Just milking it when it's going well. It's a proper connection. I, you know, I love that. We did the Cowley brothers on, on the coach's voice when they were at Lincoln. And the main bit of content we did with them ended up being called The Connection because we were like, you know, you've gone into this club that is mm. not in the best spot. And they said the first thing was go in, build relationships with the, not, not necessarily with the club, with the community. You know, we are, this football club, it's exactly going back to what you said earlier, John, football club should be and is at the heart of a community. Yeah. And one thing the Cali brothers have done from the very lowest level to where they are now at Huddersfield is, is build that connection, aim to build that connection and, and develop it and make it stronger. Because in the end of the day, the football will, will, will benefit. Because there's that. an authenticity about those guys. Yeah, I, <sighs> I remember going into their office and one of the, the, one of the other coaches was, was buttering up the toast and there were, frankly, rank bits of old kit mildewing in the corner and there were boots all over the shop. And it was... But it was a place of work, and what I found was fantastic. They had that, you know, as you said, the connection. Yeah. We, we're seeing, I think, managers in a bit of a different light in the last week or so. The, the, the other one who struck me very much was Nigel Pearson at Watford. You know, he made his political points, which we can maybe park, but the stereotype of him, you know, the ostrich and everything else. Yeah. He's killing that, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, we, I was thinking about this earlier. The, the ost aside from the ostrich, there was the, the David Myler strangling, wasn't there? And yeah. he was an aggressive, strong centre-half as a footballer. He, there have been certain events in his time as a manager where you think, oh, he's just carried that from the pitch into management. But actually, he speaks with it. Again, we spoke to him in the coach's voice when he was in Belgium. He speaks with, he is, he is articulate, he is thoughtful has an incredible, really good sense of humour. And, you know, and also, there's a, again, there's an authenticity. I remember he, he, I forget which game it was, but Watford had been defeated on the Saturday and he had a pre-existing arrangement to go on a uh, on a, pro, a programme on Sunday morning that he stuck to, that he went. He, it was made very clear by his people that this was, this was the case. And, that, you know, because obviously from a PR point of view, a manager going on TV the morning after a loss doesn't always go down well with the fans. But I think the openness that he behaves with and that he, he articulates his beliefs with, whether you agree with him politically or not, is kind of surprising. And again, but that's part of the... We've got this habit, don't we, in the UK of, of just assuming that all English managers are kind of lack subtlety and lack kind of awareness and, and progression because... We've seen certain managers historically have behaved like that. And anyone coming from overseas is is the opposite. I think Pearson's, the fact he even went overseas as well, he's a nice counterpoint to that. I think he's been really impressive. Mm. If we're talking about empathetic managers, we always talk about Gareth Southgate, don't we, mm. John? In a strange way, will the postponement, and I think it it's pretty inevitable that the Euros will be postponed for, a year, for another year, 
Will that actually help England in terms of the development of the team? Will there be a better team in 21 than they would have been in 20? I do, I do think so, yeah. I mean, there's certain areas where the team has, uh, team has weaknesses for sure. And it's just about getting back sort of the players to their best. So at centre-half, you know, you sort of kind of Harry Maguire's had a bit of an up-and-down first season at Man United, shall we say. I think Joe Gomez re-establishing himself as an absolute, you know, Rolls-Royce of a centre-half. Kind of who's going to be first-choice right-back, really? Surely it would be Alexander-Arnold. But then also it probably gives you time to go and find if you want to play you know, sort of kind of a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, whichever way you want to go, that that holding midfield player in the, in the more classical sense, because I'm not sure that basically anyone's completely stepped forward and owned that. And then are we left saying, well, we'd give Declan Rice a go or bring back Jordan Henderson to play there. And I, I just think it probably we're at this uh, stage with the England team where they're very, very close. And the one thing they're missing is sort of kind of time and regularity to kind of almost solve a few puzzles. And I think that basically, you've clearly got the obvious issues with Rashford and Kane not being kind of match fit. But I think that's a bit of a sort of a stretch to say it will help them. But of course it will to a degree. But it's about finding those kind of solutions. And I think this England team will probably come to its fruition and its peak, this particular generation in 2022. So the fact that basically could be delayed until 2021 will be definite help, I think. It also gives them a chance to maybe have another look at somebody else in goal, yeah. bearing in mind that Pickford's form this season has been mm. kind of inconsistent. Who would you go first? I don't see any reason why you wouldn't give Henderson a, a go. Well, it's, it's interesting with Henderson. The only reason why he can't give Henderson a go is because of a lack of games, isn't it? A lack of competitive games. Mm. He clearly likes him, clearly worried about, I, I would say, his, his, his attitude, which is wonderfully confident but on the flip side it can be seen as arrogant and basically sometimes you've got to show both sides and I think the extra year mm. gives him that opportunity to uh, go and get some games if for were, England. If you were playing a Euros in June there's no way Gareth would, would change it, look to change it. I think he's no, it's very good to think about Steve McLaren bringing in Scott Carson don't you for that qualifier. Yeah. Didn't go well and, and, and to, to, to go back to what you said I, I think you're right I think it gives him more time to develop you know there's right back's a really interesting one if you Trent Alexander-Arnold plays like he does for Liverpool because the midfielders drop back into false fullback positions, which isn't necessarily something that Southgate has done that much with England. So if you're going to play Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back, then you've got to think about who's playing in one, one of those midfield three roles and are they going to fulfil the same the same function that, say, uh, Milner, Wijnaldum or, or Henderson when he's playing that position does for Liverpool. So it gives him more time. It gives him more time to get more confused, of course. I think, <laughs> you know, we're all like that, aren't we? But... Um, it probably is a help. Yeah. yeah. What about that sort of internal triangle where you've got, you know, Madison, you've got Mount, and you've perhaps got Grealish to mm. play that that type of almost like a ten role. Really. Yeah. Who would you go for in that? Well, it's it's really interesting because I think the last England team was very much a four three three, and so I don't think you can like, I don't think you can play a Madison in that in the classic ten. You just don't. You play three there. And unless Madison, you know, Madison hasn't looked particularly happy when he's sort of been asked to play a slightly, you know, wide role. But then if you play it slightly different, if you do go 4-2-3-1, then Madison, you'd have to say, would be in. I think Grealish, whenever I've seen Grealish almost at his best this season for Villa, plays in one of the wide areas of the front three. I think Grealish has just been so good, so exceptional. You've got to find a way 
of getting him in. I still think Mount is a developing talent. I think the other two guys are slightly further ahead of him, even though obviously Mount has played for England more. Mm. But I just, I, 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 you've got to find a way of getting Grealish in. He's, he's exceptional. He's like, he, he, he can evolve into being the modern day sort of kind of Gaza, really. He's just one of his own, really, one of a kind. Mm. But that uh, one is sound boring. I agree with all of that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I think, I think the four, but the four-three-three. If he's going to stick to four-three-three, Mount is the one who probably gets picked ahead of Grealish and Madison, mm. just because he looks a slightly more appropriate pick in those positions. Yeah. And then you've got to think about if you're fast-forwarding a year, as Phil Foden got, yeah. he actually, does he actually get enough games to actually mm. put in his own state? Is he is he reaching a point in his career where he's got to be selfish? I think it's. I think he's past a point in his career where he's got to be selfish. Actually, I know that he's still very young, and we need to be careful about you know how many games we think about someone like Harry Kane. Who is he actually getting more injured more often now because he's just got so many miles on the clock? But how long is Foden going to be an emerging talent for? And I think if, you know, obviously David Silva leaves Man City end of whichever the end of the season, whenever that may be. But you know, players have come and gone before, and Foden hasn't been given his chance. So I think. Uh, he'll, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll stay at City. He desperately. I'm sure he wants to, but it's just a matter if he's playing, you know, 20 games a season again. He's, it's not going to further his career that much, is it? Mm, yeah. We're in a bit of a strange situation as we've you know, <laughs> continually alluded. Really, what was your weekend like? I found it was really weird not having football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really know what. I, I, so Saturday, I went, Saturday, Saturday, went to the gym and then basically <laughs> to, to my daughter's out and then. And yeah, it was didn't know quite what to do with myself really. But then yesterday, I have to say, I was down to work for for, for Tottenham, Man United, and you know, while while I sort of sympathise and empathise with a lot of kind of of my football commentating colleagues, shall we say, on on, on social media, saying, "Oh, blimey, we've got the next three months off." Well, I haven't basically got to go and find something to you know. So it was a normal working day, and and I have to say, a much harder more stressful working day on Sunday simply because you've got to find material to fill Monday morning's paper and it's going to be that way for the rest of, I think, three months. I mean, he's, he's, I think this week will be all right because basically we've got points in time from a journalistic point of view. Well, you've got, various the, meet, you got the meetings. meetings and, absolutely, yeah. all, all three of them meeting. But beyond that, I think we'll have to be creative, should we say. OK, so what are you going to do then, Tony? I think, well, I think <laughs> it's a pretty really good question. I mean, thankfully, as, as you kind of alluded to the coach's voice, we, we fo focus more on kind of philosophy and stories than we do kind of the, the football calendar. So there'll still be plenty of content coming out from us, but there is still a kind of, it's the day-to-day. -day. It's, it, it's, it's being in with the team this morning and, and not chatting about the many football things that happened at the weekend. And there are always quiet weekends. I was, I was probably ill-advisedly in Cheltenham last week. So I, was, I spent much of the weekend kind of, Getting over that, um, but <laughs> drying out. I think. They're... Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Also, my parents visiting, so watch the sequence of murder mysteries, which I will claim is because they like them, but actually it's because I love them. But yeah, it felt like one of those. You, you occasionally have it anyway. You have weekends that are just for whatever reason quieter, and they're not quite as focused as they might be on on sport and football. But I think now, as the week goes on, you just think, hang on a minute, there should be Champions League games. There should be more football. You know, yeah, it's 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 weird. Yeah, yeah. And um, as a final point, you know, one of the almost least celebrate your casualties is our, our, our Football Rights Association Football of the Year dinner. Mm. You know, that's been postponed. We are still going to be voting, though. Uh, you know, I put my hands up. 
about two or three months ago that I still thought that you know, Jordan Henderson was the one. Uh, who's your footballer of the year, guys? Well, I'm sorry to fall into line and be completely boring, <laughs> but I'm going to go Jordan Henderson as well. I just think... I do, I do it on a few levels, in that basically I do it because I, I think there's a certain emotional attachment to it. He's such a nice guy. He's such a good, good leader. You know, he's achieved so much, hasn't he, this season and, and then and, and indeed last, which, you know, lifting the European Cup came after last year's vote. So I make no bones about it. I, I take that into consideration, shall we say. Mm. But I also think he has just been a remarkable standout player for the best team in the Premier League by a million miles. They've been amazing to watch. He's been the heartbeat of it. They miss him when he's not there. They have missed him when he's not there. You know, you can see it in results and performances. And I just think he is the heartbeat of that team. He's a brilliant, you know, sort of leader of men, brilliant guy to, to wear the armband um, when he's on the pitch. And I, I, I just think, yeah, he's, he's my natural choice for, for this season's performances but also, I think, achievements overall. OK, I suspect you're going to name a Liverpool player. Which one? In the interest of balance, I'll probably chuck in a reference to, to Kevin De Bruyne, who I think at his best this season has played the best football of anyone in the league. I just think he's such a supreme talent. And there aren't many players that I can think of in my entire life who I enjoy watching when he... Those balls, those crosses are just incredible. But that's just... That's just being objective for the sake of it when obviously Jordan Henderson is the right answer. <laughs> exactly what you said, John. He is, he's been the standout player in the standout team by a country mile. And bearing in mind what we were talking earlier about the, the power and the impact that football clubs do and should have in the community, you don't need to, find, don't need to look too far to find the kind of stuff that Jordan Henderson gets involved in outside the football club and within, within the city. Yeah. The players have just donated, is it £50,000 to the... Um, 40,000 40, yeah. to the, the food banks? Yeah. Which tells you pretty much everything, doesn't it? It does. So we're unanimous. We do live in very strange times, don't we? Jordan Henderson, he's a worthy footballer of the year, even if we won't be eating rubber chicken when he picks up the trophy. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast, and please stay safe out there. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.